The Garden of Gethsemane was a place of turmoil and trembling for Jesus. You get this in Mark 14, in Luke 22, in Matthew 26. These parallel passages of this scene leading up to the arrest of Jesus are passages that tell of a scene where the Lord was trembling and overwhelmed at the terrors of what was coming. Resolved to obey, submitting to the will of God. Jesus prayed that he would not enter into temptation, being consumed by it, in other words. He told his disciples that as he's praying, they ought to be praying. And in this scene, that they would not be led into temptation. Jesus was going to drink the cup. We must be clear, the cup is not the crucifixion in the manner of death. It was not the crucifixion that lay heavy upon the heart of Jesus. It's what was taking place during the crucifixion. It was the substitution that was the cup. The substitutionary work of Christ upon the cross was the cup of judgment that Christ would bear in the place of sinners. And his closest companions could not stay awake at this very distressing hour. He prayed over and over again and and went over and over to his disciples. And he found them not wakeful and not watchful. He found them overcome, not only with physical exhaustion, but they were not going to have moral discernment for the hour. Jesus was ready. When we see these moments in the passage today, we see this morning a Lord who has not fled the garden, a Lord who has not been found unwatchful and sleeping like the disciples. Christ is ready. He's been strengthened by a heavenly angel. He has submitted to the Father. He is ready. And into the garden will come a serpent named Judas. And I I use that language specifically because we know from Luke 22, he's under the influence of the evil one. And we know from the beginning of the Bible's story, there was an evil one who crept into paradise with aims of destruction. And so Judas comes into the garden during this time of trial in which Jesus is ready. And we see today his arrest. The arrest of Jesus is reported in all four of the Gospels. And in verses 47 to 48, the arrival of Judas is described as while Jesus was still speaking. What he was telling his disciples in verse 46 is to rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That means they're faced with snares and temptations and they ought not to enter through that doorway to be consumed by and overcome by the sinful temptations of the hour. And yet they are overcome by the sinful temptations of the hour. They are remarkably not ready for what is unfolding in the sentences before us. In verse 47, Jesus' words are still in the air. He's still speaking. And there came a crowd and the man called Judas who is leading them. This crowd is comprised of some individuals we need to think about. Religious leaders are there. We know this from verse 52. He says to the chief priests, 
So we know religious leaders are there, but he also spoke to the officers of the temple because the temple in Jerusalem had the opportunity to use guards and officers to keep peace in all of the precincts of the temple complex. Apparently, some of those temple officers and some of these religious leaders are in the crowd. We're told in John 18, 3, that a band of soldiers and some officers and chief priests and Pharisees were there. We should, we should picture a mix of Jewish Gentile antagonists. Who's coming hostile against Jesus? Some Roman soldiers, some temple guard, some chief priests, and according to John 18, 3, some Pharisees. A mix of people that would truly represent those Jesus has come for. Jews and, Chin, Jews and Gentiles have come for Jesus. But they, they need not ultimately fear. Jesus has come for the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, they've come against him for nefarious purposes. They intend to arrest him. They have conspired against him. They're choosing this hour. The soldiers would have been carrying short swords. Temple guards and no doubt some of the chief priests may have armed themselves with some clubs in case anything went wrong. What were the people in Jerusalem to see if they were looking out their window at the latest hour of the night? I think we should picture past midnight on Thursday into the early, early hours of Friday morning. And at this point, the city would be by and large asleep. But let's say somebody with insomnia is looking out the window and they're just pacing back and forth. If they were looking in the right direction east of Jerusalem, they would see the glow of torches in a group. According to John 18, 3, this group came carrying lanterns and torches into the blackness of Gethsemane. There are no park lights, no street lights. It is a black night and this group lit by lanterns is coming along as the arresting crowd. They can't be too large. They've got to be able to travel together. They don't want to attract any attention, but they need to be intimidating. They can't be too small. They need to be able to see Jesus and get Jesus. They need to be the kind of group lit and armed to where Jesus and the disciples are not going to try to resist them. This crowd comes and the man called Judas was leading them. His name is mentioned here and we've been prepared for it. Earlier in Luke 21 and 22, Jesus has been preparing for this time. He's warned his disciples about the need to be awake. And in Luke 22, Judas has made an agreement for pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Earlier that night, Jesus had had a meal with his disciples. And at some point, Judas has excused himself. And I wonder if the disciples thought, looking at their watches, he's been gone an awfully long time. Where is Judas at? When will he come back to us? Well, up comes Judas. Judas, there you are. But Judas isn't alone. The man called Judas comes. He's one of the 12. We would expect that he knows where Jesus would be. It's customary that Jesus meet here with his disciples. We've seen that described already as the customary meeting place. So Judas knows where to go. The disciples might be expecting his return, but a whole band of group, a group of soldiers are behind Judas. And you can just imagine the lights turning on in all the disciples' minds. Ah, this is how it's going to go down. It's Judas. Judas is the one, and he's got a bunch of people with them, and they're carrying weapons, and they're carrying torches, and we're in the middle of the night. This is how this is going to go. What a chilling moment 
from head to feet. That one of the 12, Luke just wants you to remember that. You're not going to forget that. The name Judas reminds you already, but he puts it there explicitly. One of the 12 leading them, leading them, not cowering in the back, one step boldly in front of the other, heading into the garden, leading the whole group. Oh, the brazenness of this man, a companion of Jesus for years. Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. What is he doing? He's leading the arresting crowd with the soldiers in the temple guard and officers and Pharisees armed and lit with torches and lanterns. He's coming for Jesus. He's got the money in his pocket that justified the whole thing in his mind. He's traveled with Jesus, eaten with Jesus, talked with Jesus, been a companion among the 12 for years. And he knows exactly where Jesus would be. So one of the 12 leads them and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him because there could be no mistakes at this moment. What happens next would have happened very quickly. And in the darkness of the hour and with the glow of torches casting shadows and lighting up figures to some degree, they have to make sure that among the group... That Jesus is rightly identified. And in this case, the kiss would make it certain. A kiss on the cheek, a customary sign of respect and love and companionship. This is, a, this is an action of a friend. This is a display of fellowship and inclusion of hospitality and generosity. That in this moment, someone who knows Jesus would come to him and greet him. There are only two times in the Gospel of Luke of Jesus being kissed. There was a woman in Luke chapter 7. We're told in verse 38 of Luke 7 that she was standing at his feet, weeping, and began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. That scene in Luke 7 is lavish devotion and outrageous, at least to the eyes of those at the table, it would have been outrageous, display of affection and devotion. And Judas's display is not one of devotion. It's a sign of affection, but of course, there's a hook in it. It's disingenuous. He simply means that all of the people would watch him go up to the right person, Think about how practical this is. If you're in the crowd of the disciples, you might be looking for your exit. Where are we going to go? And if the group disbands, the group with the weapons needs to know the person to pursue. And if Judas goes right up to Jesus, they can keep their eye on him no matter where else anybody runs. They'll find the rest of them later. So this is not the kiss of an outsider. Though it doesn't have the meaning and connotation as the woman's did in Luke 7. This is the Judas kiss. And this phrase is rightly associated with infamy and betrayal. Jesus had said earlier in Luke chapter 22, verse 21, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus is not surprised at what's unfolding in verse 47. The disciples are no doubt surprised because earlier they said in verse 22, I'm sorry, in verse 23, they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. 
It wasn't necessarily obvious to everyone that it would certainly be Judas. They began to question who it could be. And in verse 47, Judas comes with the kiss. Jesus responds with a question, calls Judas by name. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas's name appears now not just by the narrator, but by Jesus' own words. And Jesus' question is worth reflecting on for a moment. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, Judas, would you betray me with a kiss? Though talking about himself, he uses a particular title of striking significance in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a figure who goes with the Ancient of Days to receive all authority and glory over the nations. It's the figure known as the Son of Man. Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man. Earlier in Luke 22, verse 22, he says, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. In Luke 9, 44, he told the disciples, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. When Judas is thinking of betraying someone, Judas has taken as his object of betrayal the Son of Man. This is not going to go well. Judas has aligned himself against who? Peter, James, Bartholomew. He has aligned himself against the Son of Man of Daniel 7. The one who will have all authority and glory over the nations. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now in verses 49 to 51, there's an outbreak of violence in the scene. And listen, friends, we can imagine the pressure in that moment is to the max. People must have felt like they were trying to figure out whether to explode or be a little more patient. Who's going to move first and what are they going to do? In verse 49, when those who were around him saw what would follow. In other words, these were a group of people who could read the room. Okay, they're looking around. They see the the arresting crowd arriving. They know exactly what's about to happen. And all they can think of is, well, we need to make something happen first. When they saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And I don't think they were exactly asking for permission because in verse 50, this is what's going to happen next, okay? So the question seems to be one more of, Lord, hasn't now the time become clear? This is the moment. Shouldn't we strike with the sword? A question, if you will, that's not so much asking for permission and waiting with arms folded patiently, but rather saying with a question, hasn't it now arrived? The enemies of God have just crept into the garden. It's time to overthrow them. You wonder if the disciples were thinking things like Isaiah 11, verses 4 and 5, which says that God's Messiah would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips kill the wicked. And here the wicked have come against the anointed one. Were they thinking of Psalm 2, where they have gathered together against the anointed one of God who's come to rule over his enemies? Clearly what needs to happen next is these enemies be subdued. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? They'd already done some inventory earlier. Verse 38, Lord, we have two swords. One of them belongs to Peter. In John 18, verse 10, it's Peter named who does the action of verse 50 in our passage today. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. 
Now, Luke doesn't name him. We know from John 18, 10, this is Peter. Peter draws his sword. Of course, Peter would have a sword. Of course he would. Of course he would. Why wouldn't he? He's got two, two swords have been uh, uh, identified as part of the group. One of them, certainly Peter's. And then what, what happens next? Somebody's going to act. Well, Peter's acting. Shall we strike with a sword? Peter draws it, wields it. And, and some have said, well, is this Peter just having terrible aim? What is he going for the ear for? A pastor once illustrated this, as I'm going to do for you, um, just by tilting my head. The, the swing of Peter's sword might not have been for the ear, but for the neck. And in the ducking process, okay, perhaps an ear was lost. I'm not sure Peter's going, you know, this way. I think he's saying, shall we subdue our enemies and, and perhaps a swinging this way. That, that is a plausible construction of this moment. That Peter, Peter is seeking to overcome, not lightly wound, an enemy. He is going for the high priest, uh, well, the high priest servant who is here. And cuts off the right ear, likely because of the quick reaction of the high priest servant, where only an ear was lost in this case. Luke and John mention that the right ear is severed. The Gospels talk about this moment of violence, but Luke and John tell us it was the right ear. The right ear is severed as the servant of the high priest in the midst loses it. Now John tells you his name. We know the name of the sword wielder, and we know the name of the guy who loses his ear. Peter's the man that swung the sword. The high priest's servant is named Malchus. M-A-L-C-H-U-S. Malchus. From John 18.10, John gives us his name and John alone among the four Gospels. In verse 51, Jesus' response is not affirmation. Way to go, Peter. Try again, though. <laughs> you can only an ear. Um, you know, who's got the other sword? You guys said there were two. This is Jesus' response in verse 51. No more of this. And I wonder if Peter had already brought it back up into the air. And then he hears this. He hears this. And he looks to Jesus. And Jesus begins walking toward the servant of the high priest. Moves Peter out of the way. Since Peter was close enough for this wound to have happened, likely with a short sword. Peter, let me get between the two of you. Oh, what a moment this is. Only, John, only uh, Luke's gospel tells us what happens next. And Jesus touched The servant's ear and heals him. Whoa. That's a staggering moment. If you're the disciples, that's very confusing. If now is the time we strike with the sword. But if every person you strike with the sword, if Jesus is just going to follow that up and heal the wound, well, you're not going to be getting very far subduing your enemies by violence. He touches the man's ear and heals him. Mark's gospel tells us Jesus rebukes those who came out against him with swords and clubs. But in Matthew 26, he also has a word for his disciples. All who draw the sword will die by the sword, Jesus tells them in Matthew 26, 52 to 54. 
It's a dismissal of Peter's intervention. Now, listen, Peter would have had the best of intentions, right? These are the enemies of God coming into the garden. They're coming to take the anointed one. We believe he's the Christ. You're not coming against him. You've got to get through us first. This is a moment of courage. It's a moment of bravery. Peter is standing there. He is outnumbered and he is outweaponed and he pulls a sword ready to defend Christ. So before we look at Peter and say, what in the world is he thinking? Consider from Peter's perspective. Is he just going to sit back and let them come at Jesus? This moment here is probably what begins to bewilder Peter's mind to a degree where in the next scene in the courtyard of the high priest, he says, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Because this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where Peter was willing to come against an armed crowd. This is not Peter saying, I'm not going to identify with Jesus. This is Peter saying, Jesus, I told you earlier to death in prison with you, I'm going to go. I'm getting in the middle of this. I'm drawing my sword. Shall we strike now? It's the, it's the event of no more of this. The healing of this man's ear, the giving of Jesus by voluntary um, subjecting himself to the arresting crowd. This is probably what feeds in the mind of Peter what happens next in the high priest's courtyard. Peter thinking, do I really know this man? Do I really want to be associated with this man? After what he's going to go and do? We had swords. We were ready. So in this moment, I think we see a Peter ready to be bold, though acting not in the best interests of the Christ. Thinking in terms of violence and physical preservation here of the life of Jesus. This, what would, this is what would be best, right? Judas is going to betray Jesus. Peter saying, I'm going to defend Jesus. But then Jesus says no more of this. Matthew tells us something else that Jesus says. In Matthew 26, 53, Jesus says, Don't you think that I could appeal to my Father and He would at once send me 12 legions of angels? Don't think for a second, this crowd is in control. They're not coming because they're the prevailing, greater, mightier group. Oh, they're not, Peter. But if Peter and the disciples are only evaluating this scene with the eyes of the world and only looking at how violence is going to solve this and how the Christ is not going to be taken by them over my dead body, Jesus says no more of this. And for Peter, boy, that's a big mind-bewildering change. This must have seemed so confusing, even though Jesus had said earlier, the Son of Man must be delivered over. You wonder, did Peter think about the implications of what Jesus meant? He must suffer and be betrayed and and be flogged and die. Has Peter not thought through what Jesus' prophecies must mean? Peter seems resistant to the uttermost that it's going to go this way. And it's as if Jesus says, take that sword and put it away. No more of this. And then he goes and he heals the man's ear. So the first response of Jesus is verbal. No more of this. The second response of Jesus is an action. It's a miracle right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now Luke has given you a lot of miracles. This is the last miracle of Jesus before the cross. 
And it's to someone who is part of a group that had come at him with mob hostile intent, ready to do violence if necessary against him. The man's ear is lost and Jesus heals him. Jesus' last miracle before the cross involves a rejection of the sword being used in his name. It makes you think about Luke 6.35 where Jesus said, Love your enemies and do good to them. Must have seemed so confusing those to the disciples. Not just to the disciples. How confusing would this have been to Malchus, the high priest's servant? Now I don't know what he came into the garden expecting to happen. If this was just going to be a quick arrest, the disciples weren't going to resist and they were going to take him away. But now all of a sudden he came in with two ears and now he doesn't have one of them. And then Malchus is healed by the man they came to arrest, this revolutionary. This one who was a threat to the status quo. I would suggest to you, friends, that the healing work of Jesus made a profound impact on Malchus on that night. How could you leave the same? Walking around for days, just touching his ear. Just thinking about that right ear and who did it. Just replaying that scene in Gethsemane over and over again. The swishing of the blade and thinking, what else was the man going for? At least I only lost my ear. But then remembering Jesus stepping forward, moving Peter out of the way, saying, put that aside. And then healing him in that moment. Oh, what a moment. And the the theologians in church history have often suggested That Malchus became a believer and follower of Christ Jesus. That's why his name has been preserved in the gospel account. Because he's not some major official in the Roman Empire. Or even among the religious elite. But to know his name decades after the the, uh, events in the Garden of Gethsemane. For the gospel of John's writing. it's, It's very likely that Malchus becomes a follower of Jesus. So in this last miracle before the cross, Jesus is doing good to his enemies. He's going to pray for his enemies on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, this high priest was, uh, or this servant was a servant of a high priest. The high priest named Caiaphas. But in the garden, there's a better high priest on this night. His name is Jesus. He's a true and greater high priest. What we would love to be the case is that Malchus came into the garden, the servant of one high priest, and he left the garden, the disciple of a different high priest and a better high priest at that. His action in the garden must have seemed so disillusioning for the disciples and so surprising to Malchus, the high priest's servant. Jesus will now be taken. And in verses 52 to 53, the last part of our passage today is Jesus' third response. First response, no more of this. Second response, healing the high priest servant Malchus' ear. Third response, a question for the group that had come for him. So a word to the disciples, a miracle for an individual, and then a word for the arresting crowd. Then Jesus said, To the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So his words against them in his third and final response in Luke's scene, he gives a question first to them. 
What have they considered him to be? They've apparently evaluated him to be of such danger that they have to come out with a group armed. When there has been no record of any physical or violent act of Jesus in their in, in any evidence that they could offer, nor anything the Gospels record for us. He's, he's looking at this group made of Jewish and Gentile folks, and they've come out like they're coming to apprehend a terrorist. The word robber is a little too light. The word robber was pro- is probably better translated in this scene something like a revolutionary. Because if somebody was you know, stealing things in the marketplace like a, th- like a thief... They wouldn't come against a robber with these kinds of things. This whole entourage, it, it smacks of a, of a view of Jesus that means he's such a threat to us that we had to have this kind of group armed in this kind of way because of what we believe he's capable of. And then Jesus goes and he heals the servant's ear. Doesn't seem very threatening. Seems like the people that are the most threatening might be Peter and the other guy with his sword. Have you come out as against a revolutionary with swords and clubs. Are we going to come and, and throw down here in the Garden of Gethsemane in the darkness of the night? Jesus is not leading a revolution in worldly terms. His kingdom is not of this world. And you see in the earthly kingdoms of the world, they establish their reign through use of force. Subjugating their enemies, overcoming all antagonists. And here the hostile people have arrived in the crowd and Jesus isn't acting like any king they're used to. They're part of the Roman Empire, these soldiers that are there. These Jews are occupied in the land by a Roman Empire that would not hesitate to exert its mighty weight and strength to subdue revolutionaries. And here Jesus is healing people in the garden. Have you come out as against a revolutionary? One who looks like the kings of this world. He says in verse 53, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. You see, it's early, early in the hours of Friday morning. And this will be the day Jesus is crucified. But he's been in Jerusalem during the days earlier in the week. He first rode to Jerusalem on Sunday, right? Palm Sunday, Passion Week. Begins with him riding on a donkey to Jerusalem. We're told in the Gospels he teaches day after day after day during the day in the temple. So he's been there on Sunday, he was there on Monday, he was there on Tuesday, there on Wednesday, also on Thursday. And now Friday in the early, early hours, he says to them, so you're coming at me, right, with charges, you've got accusations that are justified, day after day in the temple then, why didn't you lay hands on me? This is a a show-stopping moment where they have to realize that if our accusations against Jesus... We're substantiated, confirmed, provable. Then we could have gone after him days ago and no one would have been able to do anything because of the evident nature of the charges. But you see, that's not their position, is it? It's not their position. The events that are going to follow are a sham of a trial. And they've already decided a verdict and they're trying to drum up witnesses to support it. They've already drawn their conclusions about Jesus, no matter if he just healed somebody in the garden. I wonder if any of them looked at each other and said, wait, should we really go through with this? Look what he just did to Malchus. His ear got cut off and Jesus just healed him. Is this really the guy? This is the guy Judas kissed, right? This is the revolutionary. So he says, I was there day after day teaching. And you didn't lay hands on me. 
which perhaps said to them their justifications were not what it ought to have been. And it was clear to Jesus and clear to them. So he said, but this is your hour. What a remark. This is your hour. It's a way of encapsulating the sinister nature of the forces of darkness around them. It's as if he's saying the principalities and powers, the hour that's drawing near, Satan's influence upon Judas, the cup of judgment, all of that time converging together. He says, this is the hour. Now, I don't think he's talking about an actual 60 minute span. I think this language hour is a way of referring to the, this period of time, this window in history in which Jesus is taken in by the Jewish and Gentile captors and they will do their worst against him. This is your hour. And this word power could be authority. This word, uh, so it could be, this is your hour, the authority of darkness or the power of darkness. They could not seize Jesus apart from the appointed hour. They would not have been able to apprehend him. In fact, John's gospel holds out the coming hour in front of the reader, saying that they were coming against Jesus over here and they were conspiring over here. They wanted to destroy him over here, but the hour was not yet. So there's language like that. Jesus in Luke 22 says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And he doesn't just mean because it's dark around them at night. Darkness is at work. And they're on the side of darkness. They might have the torches. They might have the lanterns. They might have the armory. But they're on the side of darkness. They could not seize Jesus before the appointed hour. And this is Jesus' reminder again in verse 53. This is your hour, the power of darkness, as if he is voluntarily laying himself down in the uh, processes of what's coming. They have to do their work under the cover of darkness because it's treacherous, it's conspiratorial, it's illegal, and they will have their hour, but it will not last. I think the temporal nature of this is evident in the term hour. This is your hour, but therefore it will not last. This is the authority of darkness, but that's not the only authority and power that's at play. One writer puts it this way, evil is briefly allowed to come to its full expression. And Jesus uses darkness as a metaphor to show its evil's hour. Even on Good Friday, when Jesus is dying on the cross, there will be darkness over the land. There's something about darkness that fits with judgment and grief and sorrow and agony. And here this Gethsemane moment is indicating and foreshadowing what is to come. The night is dark. But listen, friends, Jesus is the light of the world. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the invitation to all of us. That what they're doing here in the power of darkness and the cover of darkness is coming to seize the light of the world. But the darkness cannot contain him. They cannot contain him. The Roman soldiers cannot contain him. The cross will not defeat him and the tomb will not encapsulate him. The light of the world will not be held by them. Christ is the true and greater David. He could say like in Psalm 23, Jesus could say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, 
and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Behold, the light of the world, the Christ 